Thanks for listening to the Movement Church Podcast. Movement is located in Newport, Kentucky, and you're always welcome to join us on a Sunday morning at 1030. Hope you enjoy this podcast. Josh, like Heidi said, and, and uh, I'm so privileged to be uh, one of the pastors here at Movement Church. And when we um, were going through last year and planning ahead for this year and the, the messages we were going to give and, and how we were going to help lead people and help, help people find and follow Jesus, uh, the plan got changed, like a lot of our plans this year, right? And, and so a few months ago, we started thinking, okay, how do we respond to this? How do we live in this time? Whatever uh, concern or worry that we have, what is the best response here? And it came down to me, for me, it came down to just the idea, well, what did Jesus say in his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount? And so we've been going through this, and the Sermon on the Mount is this uh, incredible collection of, uh, of a sermon that maybe Jesus gave once, or maybe he gave multiple times. We see it recorded in multiple Gospels. And what we see is just some real clear instruction and some really alternative, countercultural ways to view life. Uh, so much so that, that it has lived on and is probably one of his best-known teachings or collections of sayings. And so Jesus starts off the Sermon on the Mount by talking about who's in and who's out, and the whole idea of who would be accepted and who would be excluded is flipped on its head. And then he starts to talk about how there's this uh, obligation that people who love God have to be salt and light. Salt, the thing that preserves, light that overcomes. And as we've been going through this, we, we see that Jesus comes to this issue of worry. And I thought maybe we would just skip it, because I don't think that really applies to us, right? Like, I don't think we have any worries, right? Uh, I, I look at what would have been going on in that time, in that day and age, with that audience, that original audience. What would they be concerned about? Well, they'd be concerned about providing for their family. Uh, there were high, high taxes because the Roman Empire was this oppressive force. And there was kind of this constant threat, because they had done it to other people groups, that the Romans would just wipe out the people. There's this issue, this worry, this concern that they're losing their cultural and religious identity. It's kind of this constant question that they're asking themselves, if we are the people of God, how is God allowing the suffering? Like, if we are on the right side of this, if we are blessed, if we are chosen, then how do we explain the suffering and the pain? And then I think about the worries that we have today, and I put together a list. I don't think it's quite exhaustive, but it, it's a pretty good shot. So here's the list of things that we might be worried about today. We could be worried about getting sick or someone we love getting sick. We could be concerned and, and worried and anxious about issues of racial justice, issues of criminal justice, the police, the courts, the laws. We could be concerned about hijacking of issues of racial justice for means that we don't support. We could be concerned about the treatment that we would receive or how we would treat, you know, what we would do if we were to get sick. We would be worried about how getting sick would change our day-to-day. -day. Do we have to quarantine? Who's going to watch the kids? What about work? You know, providing for ourselves and families as we experience economic hardships. Will my, or the one that I love, that small business, will my small business survive through this? How should I go out in public? How should I see friends? Going to the store, going to restaurants, etc. And I got my libertarian friends who are worried about infringements of civil liberties by politicians. My progressive friends are worried about government response, corruption, responses to the pandemic, racial unrest, and issues. 
And then my conservative friends are worried about government response, corruption, response to the pandemic, racial issues, and unrest. Those of us with kids are worrying about how to send the kids back to school, or if we even should. How will we navigate virtually learning from home while also trying to work, trying to provide? Will virtual learning cause my kids to fall behind socially with their peers? What if my kids get sick? What if my kids get me or someone in my family sick? What if teachers or staff at schools get sick? Can I or should I go back? Should I start college? In the church world, I know I worry about how we can wisely move forward. Is it safe to gather in person? I ask myself, are we pursuing our mission as a church if people are worshiping online? People that maybe have lost the connection to Movement Church. Maybe they're not here. Maybe they're not online. Have we, have they, are, they just, are they just gone? Are we never going to see them again? How do we be salt and light moving forward? Now, I'm sure you can come up with your own list of very serious concerns, very real concerns. But there are also plenty of other things that really aren't that big of a deal, but we still kind of worry about them, right? Maybe we worry, like, can I ever attend a concert? Can I ever go to a show or a play? Can I ever go to have a date night with my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my spouse? Can I travel? Or what what is going to happen with that vacation I've been setting up, saving up for? Am I ever going to be able to go to Sam's Club and get free samples? What about college football? What about the NFL? What about Joe Burrow's development not having OTAs and minicamps? Will my favorite show, my favorite show, will it be able to come back on TV? Has the production been interrupted? Will Tenet, the new Christopher Nolan movie, ever come out? Will baseball be able to actually finish, or the Reds' bullpen just do them in entirely? We can come up with all sorts of different things that we're concerned about, right? We can come up with things that keep us up at night, things that annoy us, things that bother us, things that radically change our day-to-day. We can come up with all of these things. We have worry for our loved ones. We have worry for our future. We, can, we are concerned about the future of the church, the future of society, the first future of our country. So what do we do? If first and foremost, our allegiance is to Jesus, if first and foremost, we are followers of Jesus, if you put yourself in that category, I think you have to ask yourself, what does Jesus say about worry? Well, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus has this long section, this long teaching about worry, and it'll be on the screen, and I'd love for you to follow along. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34, Jesus says the following. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or drink or about your body or what you will wear is not life more than food and the body more than clothes look at the birds of the air they do not sow or reap or store away in barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them are you not much more valuable than they can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life side comment i'm trying it's not working so far Jesus goes on and says, and why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spend. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, 
and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble on its own. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I want to live this. I want to be a person who is not carefree because I'm oblivious or ignorant. I want to be carefree because I've placed my cares in the right place. I've given them to you. And Jesus, this is a huge thing. This is a huge task. This feels overwhelming to me, and I'm sure it feels overwhelming to others. And so, God, I'm asking, Jesus, I'm asking that you would show us what this looks like. That you would give us next steps. That you would allow our nervous energy to be placed in kingdom things. That you would allow our eyes to be fixed on you and your work and your kingdom. And that we start there. And as you say, the rest will take care of itself. And so God, right now in this moment, I'm asking for help that you would allow me and you would allow us to set aside the to-do list in our minds to set aside the concerns of this week, to set aside the worries, the legitimate anxieties that we have for the weeks and months to come. And you would allow us to be present and to hear what you have for us. Father, we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So Jesus comes in and he's hitting us hard with this idea of worry. Now think about what he's talked about so far. He's talked about murder. He's talked about adultery. He's talked about how we are supposed to understand what we would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, those scriptures and teachings. He's not taking on trivial matters. He's talked about generosity and prayer and, 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 uh, and fasting. He's talking about major issues that help us connect and things that we need to avoid. And so often he's talking about this idea that we have to address what's going on within because eventually we're all exposed. Eventually what's within comes out. And he talks about worry. Now, isn't it interesting that in the light of all these things, he talks about something that all of us experience and in so many ways all of us just kind of accept, right? We say, well, I worry because I love and that might be true. You might say, I worry because someone has to do the job, and there's some truth there too. You might say, I worry because I don't want something bad to happen, and I, if I work hard enough, I can control some of that. And yes, some of that is true. But I think we've kind of allowed worry, allowed anxiety, allowed these things just to become part of our life. And if we're a follower of Jesus, we might just give lip service and say, yeah, yeah, God, God is, is taking care of that. God is on the throne. Yes, I need, to, I need to be reminded of this. I need to cast my anxieties, cast my fears, cast my worries upon him because he cares for me. We might be able to say yes to all of that. But do we really believe it? 
Because here's the thing about the Sermon on the Mount, right? It is confrontational. It goes against our understanding of the world. It says, you thought this was how things were. No, no, no. It's actually like this. It is countercultural. It is forcing us all to ask the question, do I really believe this? Because we all know, as we talked about last week, we place security in things that aren't really giving us security. We're placing our, our hopes and our dreams in things that don't really provide that. That for Jesus, part of being salt and light in the world, part of, of protecting against the decay and illuminating the dark with the message of Jesus, with following Jesus, we have to start with the things that are in our own hearts. We have to start with ourselves. And what better way to talk about this challenge to ourselves than to talk about worry, to talk about concern and anxiety about the unknown. Now, understand this. I am not just preaching as an outsider here. If you know my story, anxiety is a big part of it. It is something I am fighting. It is something that I I struggle with. It is something that in the day-to-day, in the big things and the little things, I have anxiety. I have anxiety, and I've made this joke before, but about 10.20 every Sunday morning, I look around the room, or I log on, and I say, well, no one's coming. It's finally happened. No one's going to show up, right? Or or, or I think to myself, well, I, I, I put effort into this or that, but does it really matter? I struggle with this, too. I have concerns about my kids' future. I have concerns about what's happening tomorrow and what's happening in 50 years. I have anxiety. And when I look at myself, when I look at my own issues, I think that it boils down to this. It boils down to this idea, this question. Do I have a scarcity mindset or an abundance mindset? I've talked about this before, but I think it's crucial. Do I have a scarcity mindset or an abundance mindset? If we were to look back to Matthew chapter 6 there where Jesus is talking about this, he says, why would we worry when Jesus, or when God, he says, when Jesus says that God provides for the birds, when God clothes the flowers in splendor, why would we worry about these things? Isn't my provision, isn't my love enough? But my scarcity mindset says there's not enough, that I need to work harder, I need to provide. And we see this playing out in the scriptures. We see the abundance mindset happening, and we see the scarcity mindset happening. If we go back to the second book of the Bible in Exodus, we see the newly freed slaves who are being freed, who are going to the promised land, who are experiencing and seeing miracles beyond our comprehension. They want to go back to slavery. Because in their minds, well, at least we were well fed. At least those those pots at the end of the day, those dinner stews or whatever it was were filled with meat because the Egyptians knew they had to give them protein so they could haul and make bricks. We see Daniel refusing to go along with a pagan god, refusing to bend to that because he knew that even in the face of such certain destruction, such certain punishment, that his guy was providing. He had that abundance mindset. We see that abundance mindset when David, who is on the rise, who will become king, has been anointed. You are the future king. The current king Saul, his mentor, his father figure, David had chances to end it because Saul had turned on him, and yet he doesn't because David understood that God had more. The disciples... The disciples are incredulous when Jesus, in one of these teaching moments where thousands of people are gathered, 
and they say, hey, we got to feed these people. we got a logistical problem here. And Jesus says, you feed them. And they freak out, how can we do that? We can't do that. And then he says, well, what do you have? Well, well, a kid brought his sack lunch, and he's got some fish, and he's got some bread. And Jesus says, well, sit, have them sit down in groups of 50 and watch what I'm about to do. And they're still not on board. They still don't see it because they had a scarcity mindset. We see the abundance mindset is Paul is under house arrest. He's facing execution. He's writing to churches, encouraging them to press on in their faith. He's encouraging them to continue to follow Jesus, to continue to be the church because he had that abundance mindset. The difference here, the difference in understanding, the difference between a scarcity mindset and an abundance mindset is simply this. Do I think I have to do it or do I believe that God is doing it? Do I think that I have to do it or do I believe that God is already doing it? Now understand this, God is not this, this, this uh, 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 genie-like wish-granting figure that will somehow just make it all true and all we have to do is sit back. No, God invites us along, he enables us, he equips us, he gives us gifts and opportunities for ministry. This is a partnership, this is absurd that God would do this, but this is how it seems to work. And so when we're saying yes to God, we're saying yes to God, you have abundance here. And so for me, I have to ask myself, am I holding tightly to my kids' future? Am I holding tightly to my marriage? Am I holding tightly to the church, to our church? Am I holding tightly to those things because I think I can change it? Do I think that I have to be the one do I have to be the one who solves this? Or am I open-handed with those things and say, God is already doing these things? Am I being in that place? So it's very simple for us. We can kind of give ourselves a test. Think about the thing that concerns you, your kids, your future, your health, whatever it might be. Think about that. When you think about these things and all of the real burdens that you have, do you feel like it's clenching? Do you feel that stress? Do you feel like you're holding on? Or do you have an openness where you're excited about what's going to happen? You might look around. You're not being naive. You're not being blind. You say, there are big issues. There are big challenges here. But man, look at, wow, what is God going to do in the midst of this? See, when we worry, we're having that reaction, that tightness. And so when we feel that, when we feel that, what do we do? Because when we say yes to God's abundance, we are saying, yes, God is still at work. We are saying God is still at work, still ahead of us, still with us. We aren't forgotten. And there's still God providing, still loving us. So what do we do? In the face of this, what do we do? We do things that help us embrace the abundance of God. Today has enough to worry about for itself. We can't control the future, but we can be embraced by God in the now. So what do we do in the face of worry? We follow Jesus. With a biblical word for that, we embrace discipleship, which means essentially we are repenting, we are asking for forgiveness, we are saying what I have done was not of God's best. Maybe it was self-destructive, maybe it was distracting, maybe it was toxic, or maybe it was just outside of what God wants, right? We say, I'm going to leave this, I'm going to repent of this, and the word literally means that you're going in one direction, you stop, you turn around, you go the other direction. That's what it means to repent. 
It means you repent. You say, say God, I'm going to make myself fully vulnerable to you. I'm going to expose myself. I'm going to ask for forgiveness. I'm going to acknowledge that these things were wrong. And then we open ourselves up to the ways of Jesus. We let go of the extra. We embrace the real. Jesus says this is a way of sacrifice and service. Before he goes to the cross, he teaches that to follow him means that we carry our own cross. We carry our own instrument of death. We carry our own instrument of self-destruction because we are going in the place of someone else. We are serving. We are giving of ourselves. We recognize that whatever we have done is rather meaningless in the face of the Almighty God. We allow ourselves to die, or as John the Baptist says, that we want ourselves to, to diminish and we want more of jesus when we feel that urge to hold tightly what do we do how do we follow jesus as i said last week the first place we start is we focus in on the gospel the first thing we have to do i think on a daily regular basis we have to hear the gospel I think this is so important as to why. This kind of gives reason behind the why. People like myself have said over and over again that we need to be reading the Bible. Not because there's going to be some sort of oral exam or some sort of written standardized test when we get to heaven, but because we have an opportunity to see, to hear, and to learn about the gospel. It is all over those 66 books from Old Testament to New. We see the gospel. We see the gospel that doesn't just say Man, God is so good, and you are so terrible. It may start there, but it goes on. It goes further. There is a redemptive hope in the gospel that says, guess what? Even though you haven't figured it out, even though you hold tightly to things, even though you have messed up over and over and over again, even though you get these regrets, you get these shames, you've got just this wasted time, guess what? You can be forgiven. You can be restored. You can be adopted into the family. See that. It's not just some sort of law contract, some sort of change of status in terms of this legal official statement. I think it's that. But it's also this familial, this, this kind of embracing thing that we are adopted into the family. The gospel says not only are you forgiven, not only are you your past taken care of, your future is this glorious thing where now you are a part of something bigger. And that everything we do that is good, everything time we, we serve, we pray, we fast, we give, whatever it might be, we are doing that not out of obligation, not out of trying to, to earn something, attain something. We're doing it because of there's this joy that comes with it, that we get to experience the gospel, the kingdom. So we hear the gospel, we live the gospel. We live it out. Again, not to earn something, but to experience something. We live it out. And third, we start with the gospel. We don't start with our opinions. We don't start with our political affiliations. And yes, we don't even start with our logic. And we definitely don't start with our feelings. We start with the gospel. It's so easy for us to get all riled up, to get frustrated, to get upset. We're going to prove so-and-so wrong. We're going to show them how wrong they are. We are, going to, we are going to take a stand. We're going to fight for this. And yes, there are times for all of that, but we have to first and foremost start with the gospel. That must be the foundation. Stay tuned. Weeks to come in the Sermon on the Mount. We're talking more about that. So we have to focus on the gospel. We have to hear the gospel. We have to live the gospel. We have to hear it. 
We have to see what God has done through Jesus. That in the gospel there is life, not despair. In the gospel we find purpose, not apathy. In the gospel we find hope, not cynicism. So first we focus on the gospel. Second, we serve. We don't serve to show people how right we are. We don't serve to show God how good we are. We serve out of an outflow of these things. When we are worried, when we are holding on tightly to things, we get outside of ourselves. We make ourselves a background character in the story. Because when we're worried, when we're holding on to things, I think what we're saying is, I have to do more. And whenever we start with, I have to do more, I think we are moving away from the gospel. If we start with the gospel and say, God is giving me this opportunity, now I need to pursue that, I need to chase after that, and yes, I may need to go do more, that is a gospel-centered thing. But if we start by saying, I just have to do more, I have to work harder, we are just getting on that anxiety, worry, treadmill over and over again, and we're not going to get any worse. We have to serve. Jesus talks about going the extra mile. Going the extra mile <clears throat> was about changing someone not through perfect argument, not through just saying, look how wrong you are, or showing them up. Going the extra mile was through our actions, through our service, awakening them, showing them with our actions, with our love, that there's a better way. So we serve, we sacrifice, we give, we put others first. We remember that following Jesus is a race to the back of the line. What did Jesus say? That if any of you wants to be first, if any of you wants to have a, a place of promise, you will serve. You will be the servants of all. There at the Last Supper in the communion meal that we model and we celebrate at the end of our services, we see Jesus doing something that was disgusting then, especially and disgusting to some of us now. He washed feet. He took that lowly, lowly job. He is about to announce. He is about to clarify for the disciples what he's actually up to. He's about to give us this incredibly holy, symbolic, powerful act of communion. And he starts it off by getting a rag and getting a bowl of water and wiping the grimy, disgusting feet of these men who had walked everywhere in open-toed shoes without pavement. We serve. The third thing we do, we focus on the gospel, we serve, and the third thing we do is we worship. The band's going to come up and they're going to lead us in some worship. We wanted to be truthful together. We wanted to have some truthful actions so as they come on up and, and they prepare to lead us, we, we come to this third step. In the face of anxiety, in the face of worry, we worship not just to remind ourselves, though this is a good thing to be reminded of, not just to remind ourselves that we aren't God and that God is glorious, loving, and true, but we express the alternative. We express that there is a better way. We express that God truly is to something. We connect with God in prayer and creativity and action and restoration, and we also connect with God through art, through singing, through music. And so we worship as a way to declare something that is true in our lives and to declare something that we want to be true in our lives. Because I don't know about you, but sometimes I sing a song and I think to myself, I wish that was true. I wish that was true. I wish I experienced that. And I'm here to tell you, I think that is an act of worship. I think that is an act of worship that we are calling out and we are celebrating, we're asking, we're begging God for something. 
And we also worship. We also worship when we're holding on tightly to things because we need something real. We need something tangible in those moments, right? We need to feel something. We need to experience something. And so we worship not just because we enjoy music. We worship not just because these guys and so many others of the team, all of the team members are so talented. We worship because we want to celebrate what God has done. We want to elevate God and lower ourselves. And if you sing like me, that's a pretty easy thing to do. We want to get to this place where we say, God is at work. God is doing something. And when I worship, when I serve, when I focus and remind myself of the gospel, my clenched hands begin to open up. Because when your hands are clenched, you can't really do much except hurt and harm. When your hands are clenched, when you're holding on tightly, you're not of much good to those around you. But when we embrace, when we embrace the freedom that Jesus teaches us, when we embrace that we're part of the family, when we serve others with these open hands, and when we worship God with these open hands. Jesus tells us, we seek first the kingdom, and the rest will be given to you. So if you're willing, if you're able, would you stand as the band leads us?